Welcome Professor Shriram to the IMB podcast. It is an immense pleasure to host you for an episode. Thank you. Sir, we want we start a podcast generally with a very straightforward question and a simple question to set the context for our audience. Please if you could explain to us in layman terms what financial inclusion is in India's context and what are microfinance institutions that aid towards financial inclusion. Financial inclusion uh, is uh, nothing but trying to get people who are outside the formal financial sector into the financial sector. Basically, that's what it means. I mean, providing basic financial services to uh, people who don't, do not have access to financial services. For a long time, uh, we have looked at financial inclusion from the perspective of uh, uh, credit, uh, from the perspective of the supply side, and the perspective of banks and banks giving credit uh, to poorer people. But there are multiple ways in which uh, we can look at it. And microfinance institutions are the ones which uh, redefine the paradigm of uh, financial inclusion in a way, uh, because uh, that was the first time that uh, this came about from outside of the state. Uh, the initiative came out from outside of the state, largely in the first phase led by uh, voluntary agencies or uh, developmental organizations and later taken over by uh, private sector commercial organizations. Uh, broadly, that's that's what it is, trying to give a range of financial services to the people who have been left out of the formal financial services uh, and building bridges in order to ensure that they are in the formal sector. Interesting, sir. Uh, let me build a little bit on MFIs. So there has been a lingering question about the MFIs about the higher interest rates for lending. Do the high interest rates and financial inclusion become an oxymoron as the high rates would dissuade borrowers from borrowing from the MFIs and thus hindering the financial inclusion agenda? Uh, it is a little bit of a conundrum, but let me explain this uh, in a little bit of detail. Uh, the problem with interest rates is that we always articulate interest rates in absolute terms. You know, what do I mean by absolute terms? We say this is the interest rate, which is an annual percentage rate that we give irrespective of the tenor of the loan and irrespective of the purpose of the loan. And therefore, sometimes the interest rate looks very high and it also becomes comparable with other rates of interest. Let me give an example. If a vegetable vendor borrows a thousand rupees in the morning and repays thousand fifty in the evening, that is fifty rupees of interest. That is five percent a day. And if you annualize it, it becomes an obnoxiously high figure. Uh, but that vegetable vendor, possibly on the investment of thousand, makes thirteen hundred rupees or fourteen hundred rupees a day, which essentially means that she is making. Uh, 30, 35, 40% profit. Now, a 5% interest rate on a 40% profit is okay. But the question is that 40% profit, if you analyze it, then you'll also figure out that that vegetable vendor is also making a lot of money. So contextually, sometimes a 5% interest rate a day looks okay because you're in a very highly profitable, high margin business but that business cannot be scaled up. I mean, it just gets stuck there at that level. So interest rates themselves are not a big issue. In fact, if you stack up the problems that the poor have in access to formal financial services, 
you'll first find access is a problem, which is the formal sector is not giving them access or not uh, uh, engaging with them. Uh, interest rates are a second order problem. Once you get access, then you the next pain point possibly turns out to be interest rates. So uh, the issue is it, it is not that interest rates are not important, but then that's not the only issue as far as financial inclusion is concerned. Second, we also need to remember that it takes quite a bit of cost to deliver financial services to the poor because they are small transactions. Uh, they happen very frequently uh, and uh, you know the transaction costs are very high and underlying risk is high and therefore NPA levels could also be high. So if you add up all these things, it takes much more to deliver um, financial services to the poor. So therefore interest rates tend to be higher and that's a cost argument as well. Thank you, sir, for the cost of capital argument. Uh, building more on COVID and MFIs, the MFIs have relied more on the traditional methods of personal relations, social coercion, you know, the famous Grameen model. The model works when the borrowers, credit officers meet at a high frequency and discuss whom to lend, pool money and ensure the repayments. COVID imposed severe mobility restrictions in the initial days for an extended period, which must have hampered the MFIs collections and processes. Do you think it is time for reinventing the model towards an infrequent contact model? Yes. In fact, not only COVID, uh, the sector, the microfinance sector or the MFI sector as we know it, has been going through a significant paradigm change uh, ever since demonetization. Because please remember that microfinance, as we know, has been very cash based. And what demonetization did was <clears throat> it sort of removed the cash out of the hands and therefore they had to look at alternatives to repay. That is one. Second, demonetization affected some people differently from some other people. So in, in a sense, part of the group guarantee mechanism itself was being questioned because some were able to pay, some were unable to pay. And then comes COVID where you can't even come to the group meeting and therefore you need to sort of operate uh, remotely. So both these incidents coming one after the other, not necessarily in close uh, proximity, uh, has fundamentally questioned some of these traditional notions that we have about uh, how poor can be serviced. Uh, but we should also remember this is also the season where the poor have simultaneously encountered a lot of formalization of data capture, credit bureau uploading and so on. So therefore, they also have a credit history right now with them, which which helps them to navigate this space better. Thank you, sir. Uh, building on the structural changes which COVID has brought, you know, if MFIs were lending to sectors most severely affected by the crisis, such as retail, transportation, accommodation and food services, etc., they might face permanent loss to their activities, negatively impacting the loan portfolios of MFIs. What was the course of action to deal with such losses to the loan portfolio? And are these changes you know, permanent or will there be short term changes? See, uh, I think uh, that uh, this sector with which MFIs are dealing is a very resilient sector. It's, uh, it's a sector which is very stable, you know, in the sense that uh, this sector is constantly used to some shock or the other and they get used to it. You know, for example, if you think of a street side vendor, 
street side vendor uh, comes to the same spot every day and deals with it. Uh, but once in a while, a street side vendor suffers a dis disruption because possibly the law enforcement agencies come and sort of clear off his space. And uh, at that time, you are not even sure that his stocks uh, that are there will safely return home with him. So he has to restart the business all over again, he or she. Similarly, uh, uh, whenever there is a VIP movement, the street side vendors are all cleared off, including those semi-permanent uh, structures that you have, and they bounce back. So in one sense, there is uh, it's not a daily event, but there is a periodic event of their losing their business completely altogether and bouncing back. Uh, so, uh, I think they are quite capable of uh, bouncing back. I mean, we are talking of really small uh, vendors. Uh, we are not talking of, um, you know, amounts more than 50,000 or a lakh of rupees of investment, uh, uh, yes, in this particular case. So, they would bounce back. So, it is not so much of a thing. The other flip side of this is these are also businesses that don't grow. Uh, these are businesses which stay at a certain scale all throughout their life. You know, because uh, the whole idea of this informal sector is that you're using free public spaces. I mean, sometimes you do pay rent in terms of, you know, a hafta or a thing, a thing like that. But you're actually using free spaces in order to carry out a trade in the street vendor uh, sort of people. So they'll come back to the streets. and. Using that model, you can never scale up. So it's it's a very peculiar, stable uh, economy which does not go up or can take these shocks quite often. So therefore, I don't think COVID has significantly affected the microfinance portfolio if they were doing, uh, if MFIs were doing these small. If they were into the MSME sector, which is a slightly, and the, the micro part of the MSME sector, yes, they would have got affected. But uh, the smaller ones have a mechanism of bouncing back. They're very resilient. The pandemic has been very harsh on everyone, but its effects were magnified on the urban poor. Considering the mass migrations of laborers and outbreaks in Dharavi and Mumbai, we all witnessed them walking back to their hometowns barefoot in the heat of April-May. Does it alter the MFI's presence in the poor urban segment and present a pent-up opportunity in the rural hinterlands where these people get got back? Can the MFIs now lend in these rural hinterlands and create employment opportunities or entrepreneurship opportunities in the Bharat and not just the India? This is an interesting question and I myself uh, was uh, engaging uh, in this thought process to understand what's happening. Uh, both in terms of uh, what it does to migration and uh, what it does to urban microfinance. Uh, let me look at these two in two different uh, bits. Uh, what was very clear on the urban bit is that we just do not have an architecture to deal with the urban poor. That was completely exposed during the pandemic, particularly when people were moving away uh, from urban locations to rural locations. Uh, whereas what what was reassuring is that the rural areas have a very good uh, institutional architecture to deal with the poor, whether it's MGNR, EGA, whether it's distribution of PDS or any of these things. We seem to or direct cash transfer and things like that in the rural areas because they are spatially identified and we assume that rural areas are generally uh, poor or larger number of poor 
live in rural areas we have had a, a mechanism of building up the architecture over the last 50 60 70 years of delivering welfare to the poor in the rural areas right we don't have a similar architecture as far as the urban areas are concerned that's one part of it that that exposure came out very clearly so so therefore because there was no delivery of welfare in the urban areas people started moving naturally to where welfare was available whether it's pds whether it's direct cash transfer whether it's mgnrg wages and and so on so uh, you can see this exodus was not only looking about safe places where they are familiar but, but also uh, places which give them stability i mean and that's what it is it might not be sufficient but it is stable right so it is not volatile so that was the first uh, uh, insight that one got out of this uh, migration the second uh, insight uh, was that we were we were thinking or, or or at least at that point in time i assumed that this might be a good opportunity for the rural areas to diversify their livelihoods and if we uh, take this as new people who have come back to the village after looking at urban areas and because they have gone all the way to the urban areas they are we assume that they are a little more enterprising and entrepreneurial and therefore there might be a good opportunity for creating a fairly decent non farm sector in the rural areas uh that's what one thought and with, with the, if mfis were present in the rural areas this part of this reverse migration could possibly be uh, permanent and people might not reserve, return back to the cities but that's what i thought in the early days of uh, reverse migration but now looking back at, uh, at this i think i was mistaken in thinking or uh, putting too much of hope that this would be a one way reverse migration people will stay back in the rural areas uh possibly the reason for that is uh even though they went back to their village and possibly they they might not they might have also been able to carry out an enterprise level activity uh what pushed them back from the city to the village was exactly the same thing that prevented them from starting a new activity in the village because lockdown there's new no new activities uh, starting off everybody is in ruins so therefore even if there was a opportunity for them to start a new enterprise i don't think it would have happened because the ecosystem was not in a position to look at a new enterprise there was no economic activity for the new enterprise so i think by the time the economy opened up and a new enterprise could come down it was also the time for them to go back uh, to their urban locations and uh, get back to life as uh, normal so what one expected would happen uh, i think we were completely uh, uh, wrong in thinking that you know the reverse migration would be possibly semi permanent in nature interesting sir uh, you know what are your thoughts on the loan moratorium periods given during the pandemic what do you think the rbi or the government could have done differently in hindsight from a financial inclusion perspective keeping the poor in mind vis-a-vis -vis the covid-19 pandemic i i mean i think that the loan moratorium was a wrong uh, decision particularly from the inclusion perspective i mean uh, did, did the poor need moratorium yes they did uh, did they need a moratorium uh, as dictated by rbi that is a question that we need to uh, uh, engage with you know because 
See, moratoriums uh, work when the tenor of the loan is long duration. You know, if you're giving a 15-year housing loan, then giving a six-month holiday and back-ending the payment uh, while continuing to charge the interest is a good idea. I mean, it, it doesn't uh, uh, harm uh, the uh, harm this entire process any which way. But if you're giving a, let's say, a six-month moratorium on a one-year loan with no... Uh, you know, interest, I mean, of course, there was later the Supreme Court came and uh, there was some excretia vis-a-vis interest, but let's assume that there was no interest uh, waiver there. Then it, what it does is it it gives you a six-month loan, uh, I mean, six-month moratorium. Uh, the interest is getting accrued. At the end of six months, you sort of start repaying the installments. And the tail extends to another six months plus the interest that you need to repay, possibly another six months plus one or two or three more months. Uh, now, if your underlying activity is destroyed, this moratorium is not going to help you. So I guess what would have helped, at least for the microfinance sector, is uh, not uh, interfering with the moratorium, but doing a direct cash transfer. Uh, that would have been a little more equitable uh, to everybody. Uh, and a heightened level of direct cash transfer would have been much better. Which it, it would have helped people who have not borrowed also. You know, direct cash transfer would have been much better as a structured. Uh, institutionally also, moratoriums are not a good idea uh, in terms of accounting. You know, what 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 happens is you do not recognize the NPA for about six months. Then you don't know whether the underlying portfolio is indeed NPA or not NPA. Uh, and then suddenly you will have to take the loss on your chin uh, sometime later. So in terms of accounting also, it was not a good idea. What, what would have been better was the concept of a moratorium, but the flexibility to, um, you know, provide for it a little later, but certainly recognize it as and when it's happening and not insist on a repayment, right? I mean, I'm talking of a very peculiar model where you recognize that it's a bad loan, but don't insist on repayment. I mean, but yeah. Thank you, sir. Uh, you know, let me shift gears. Uh, you recently reviewed a book by Tamal Bandopadhyay on the Indian banking crisis. The Indian banking system has been too fragile lately with NPS soaring and then COVID happened. Is this effect more aggravated for MFIs than traditional commercial banks? that still have a war chest of money to deal with a slowing business and a robust digital transaction presence? Uh, MFIs are non-banking finance companies largely, right? And uh, they don't have a huge uh, cash war chest. I mean, that's that's if that's what you mean. Uh, they constantly borrow from the banking system. Uh, but please remember that liquidity was never a problem as far as this crisis was concerned because RBI infused a lot of liquidity uh, as soon as the pandemic happened, because RBA's fear was if they are giving a loan moratorium and repayments are not coming and deposits, uh, maturing deposits have to be paid back, then there would be stress on liquidity and therefore they released a lot of liquidity to the banking system. Now, what happened in reality was that that liquidity, you know, in, in hindsight, and it was a very smart move uh, from RBI's side at that point in time. But in hindsight, it was an, an unnecessary move. Uh, why was it an unnecessary move? Because uh, while uh, the moratorium did not uh, uh, give too much of uh, 
uh, cash to the banks, uh, there was no flight of deposits at that point in time. In fact, what happened was the banks also accumulated a little bit more of uh, deposits, particularly wherever there were surpluses, because people then uh, did not have mechanism to spend and therefore there was some savings and savings went up. Uh, also, uh, there was a little bit of a fear about uh, the uh, capital markets, not necessarily the stock markets, which kept on going up, but the rest of the market. So therefore, there was some encashment of mutual funds and things like that, which came back and all incremental savings went into the banking system rather than to the uh, outside of the market. So in one sense, liquidity did not turn out to be a problem. Uh, as far as MFIs are concerned, as I told you that their basic model was not significantly under threat because of the type of customers that they had. My fear is uh, we don't know what's happening to the banking system yet. And banking system never has a liquidity problem because depositors keep giving money without asking questions. Whereas when an NBFC borrows from a bank, it needs to answer questions about your its solvency, its uh, liquidity and so on. Whereas banks being banks, depositors blindly go and deposit money. So uh, usually um, the banks face a problem of liquidity only when there's a problem of credibility. Uh, where you think that the bank is collapsing. Till then, uh, even if the bank is making losses, as long as people don't believe that it's going to collapse, uh, deposits will uh, will keep coming in. So my fear, and I've been writing about it, but I'm also a doomsday specialist, and uh, none of my predictions come true, so there, therefore there's no reason to take me seriously. But I think my, my own, this thing is, um, in the Indian banking, particularly public sector post-COVID, uh, there will be much more of a solvency crisis which precedes the liquidity crisis. Uh, solvency crisis preceding a liquidity crisis essentially because uh, um, there is a general faith that uh, public sector banks are have, have the backing of the sovereign. Uh, so therefore, liquidity crisis or the credibility crisis will not be greater. The solvency crisis will come up first. And we need to wait and see how the state deals with it. I mean, whether they'll bail them out, whether they'll merge, whether they'll sort of wash their hands off. Uh, we don't. Interesting, sir. In fact, in the budget announcement, we saw a provision for an asset restructuring company. Probably that is to deal with the solvency issues that might arise. Uh, sir, this is a question which you encounter a lot in your classes for the PGP batches. Uh, the internet penetration in India has increased manifold and many Indian conglomerates now bank on this rising internet adoption in Bharat as a greenfield area of growth. Has this also led to increased technology solutions offering and penetration by the MFIs? Does digital data and internet present an exciting opportunities for the MFIs to increase their scale and widen the financial inclusion net? Uh, yes, uh, certainly uh, digital provides an opportunity. There are three levels at which digital provides an opportunity. And one is a legacy uh, opportunity which the digital has already provided, which is uh, you reduce your cost by computerizing your entire operation. So you reduce uh, manpower costs and so on. So it makes it easier for you to uh, go and reach out to your clients. Second is uh, it uh, you use technology uh, for uh, transaction capture, for um, uh, you know, a whole range of uh, uh, other activities. So that in itself has its dynamic. Uh, 
the opportunity beyond that is twofold one fold is that if you look at their entire value chain of cash movements or logistics of cash movement uh, under the legacy system whatever technology you introduced at the last mile we still had to have an exchange of cash you know you either go to the atm or borrow go to the business correspondent or in cash money and so on with the more detailed or more deeper penetration of digital and if we are able to move from p2p transactions person to person transactions on mobile using you know your beam app or upi or any of these things which essentially means that the last mile transaction is also settled you know digitally and uh, not through exchange of cash then we are headed towards what is a less cash society or a cashless society that in itself provides significant opportunity because then you don't need to physically go and distribute cash or collect cash i mean there is a mechanism through which you can track it so that's one second is of course what you could do with the data and build uh, predictive models and build credit scoring models and so on uh, i am a little more uh, uh, positive about the payments uh, related uh, digital revolution i am a little concerned about uh, you know building algorithms based on sms data whatsapp data uh, all sorts of data uh, because there is a very great danger of misselling the products and there is a very great danger of um, excessive supply of products which possibly people don't uh, need and you enticing them into getting to those products i mean that's that's a scam to happen uh, so we'll wait for that scam and once the scam does then there will be regulation as well so interesting sir the regulation always follows late uh, you know this is a question i wanted to ask you india especially the national capital has been dealing with farmer protest for over 2 months now with many ugly turns because of the three new farm laws making the apmcs redundant therefore we can't miss the opportunity to ask a question about the farming sector agriculture has been an untouched area for mfis going to multiple challenges however to develop the poor farmers access to credit is a problem that needs to be solved is there a way post covid that can bring financial inclusion to the agriculture sectors like the other sectors um no i don't uh, i don't see this happening because agriculture sector is a very complex sector and i don't think we have figured out a way to do effective market based credit intervention for agriculture uh, the reason is um, the yield risk levels in agriculture are very high Uh, of course we have an insurance framework but the insurance claim settlement framework is at a much broader level and not at a farm level uh, and uh, the claim settlements has been uh, suboptimal i don't think the farmers are very happy with the uh, insurance product and uh, there is always an element of state intervention in the agricultural finance markets you know there's you can if you see the budget every year the finance minister uh, announces a credit target for agricultural loans and so on and there is private sector and so, so i mean it's a, it's a market which is distorted with too many interventions so it will take a long time before it finds its own equilibrium uh, and uh, finds its own market structures uh, it's it's because of the distortions it's never going to be easy to have a good agricultural credit market and also please remember that uh, uh the agricultural credit uh, or agricultural operation itself is a series of cash outflows right from the time you sow all the time uh, all the way till you harvest and a bullet inflow so 
which essentially means that the frequency of contact, uh, which is usually the hallmark of banking system, whether it's corporate loans or whether it's individual loans or whatever, usually you have an EMI or equated monthly installment, or at least there's some monthly contact that happens. Uh, in agriculture, the product structure does not allow you to have a monthly contact. So therefore, it's 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 not suitable to the bank's cash flow and so on. They'll do it as long as they're forced to do it. But uh, I have not found a, a very scalable, interesting agricultural finance product. I mean, there have been very interesting experiments which look at uh, tight contracts, which look at tripartite arrangements and so on. But those are not experiments which have scaled at a um, multi-institution, multi-geography level. So that's, that's where it is, yeah. Thank you, sir. Uh, in the end, to give a future outlook for our audience, how do you see the financial inclusion agenda in India in the coming years as we dream of a $5 trillion economy? What does the future have for MFIs and other institutions engaged in financial inclusion? I will pass the $5 trillion economy uh, bit and I'll just focus on microfinance. I mean, we, we need to understand that microfinance itself is a very small part of the economy. I think it it's hardly all of microfinance portfolio put together hardly adds up to about 2% of the total banking portfolio. So it's much ado is made about uh, microfinance as we know. I mean, that is MFIs, uh, uh, small finance banks and so on. However, the mainstream banks also have a significant, you know, a proportion of their uh, portfolio in what would be the microfinance type of customers. They have something called small borrower accounts and small borrower accounts. They have a range of uh, and weaker section advances. There's uh, they they do achieve their weaker section advance targets, right? So I guess what we have learned from this is we have learned that it is possible for us to uh, reach to the small borrowers through um, innovative mechanisms and we have also learned that uh, the regulatory architecture is quite tolerant uh, towards initiatives which somehow could charge high interest rates and at the same time try and deliver the commodities and that's the paradigmatic uh, shift that has happened in the last let's say 30 years 25 30 years right um, and i guess it will grow on its own um, the, the new discovery that the MFIs have done, which initially were very rural-oriented MFIs, are the urban markets. Now they're sort of saying that we've been to the urban markets, done that, can we rediscover the rural markets? So there's a constant evolution of how we can engage with these. And given that eight of the 10 uh, SFB licensees were past MFIs, uh, and they've got a banking license. They are now innovating and looking at uh, how they can offer added services to their original clients and how they can add more clients and so on. So I guess this is a space that is uh, a lot of things are happening and we just need to wait and watch. And there's quite a bit of exciting stuff that uh, would happen both in terms of delivery mechanisms as well as product uh, portfolio. And of course, superimposed by technology. So. Uh, this is quite a happening place, so it's, it would be fun. Thank you, sir. Thank you for taking out time for this podcast. It was very insightful and I'm sure our audience is going to enjoy it. Thank you.